Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. Harvey Firestein. It's a name I don't really have to explain to you, I don't think, at this point. Torch Song Trilogy, Mrs. Doubtfire, La Cage au Full. I'm rattling them off. I'm probably going to miss something iconic. Edna Turnblatt in Hairspray. The man has sung two Muppets. He has voiced Disney characters. And he's been in the Macy's Day Parade as Edna Turnblatt dressed up as Mrs. Santa Claus. So Harvey Firestein is mainstream. Who would have thought it back in the old days? He's got a great book out about his whole life, and he's here to tell us more about it after the news. That is the voice of Celeste Holm, not the voice of our guest today, Harvey Firestein. You should be able to tell those two voices apart by this time. He has written a wonderful book, a wonderful memoir called I Was Better Last Night. And, you know, I mean, this song is mentioned in the memoir. That We're just not randomly playing it. And Harvey Firestein, I think also one of the nice things, one of the bits of philosophy that's woven into this book is kind of a slight alteration of that song. There's a, a kind of uh, emphasis on saying yes that is part of your personal philosophy. It's not just a matter of not saying no. It's a matter of saying yes. Maybe we should begin there with some homespun, cracker barrel, Harvey Firestein philosophy. That's, that's gay with me. I was brought up by Ellen Stewart, who people would know as La Mama from the La Mama Experimental Theater Club from when I was rather young. And she had me working for a, the CETA program, which was a, a government grant program. She, she taught me always say no. And here's why. If you say no right away, they get over it, or at least it lowers their expectations. If you think about it, and later on decide, okay, you say yes, you're all of a sudden a hero. If your answer remains no, no harm done, and you're, they're already over it. I, I had, I, I listened to mama, but then I came up with my own philosophy, which basically is all day long, you're living your life and you're doing whatever you're doing. And people ask you 
questions. Anything from you want to go for coffee or you want to meet later or you want to meet this friend of mine. Most time we're on our tracks. We're living our lives and we say no. Without even thinking, we say no because change is hard. Changing plans is hard. And uh, saying yes is hard. But if you say no, nothing changes. Nothing happens. No, nothing happens in your life. You remain exactly where you were, as you were, stuck in whatever that track was. Not that saying yes is always a good thing, but life only gets better or changes, at least, if you say yes. And so my philosophy is... I try as hard as I can, though I still mostly say no. I try <laughs> as hard as I can to say yes. Yeah, now that the book's out, people are going to make you own that. They're going to say, no, Harvey, you said you're, you were going to say yes from now on. You're going to be going out for coffee more than you want to. Colin, it's even worse than that because <laughs> somebody in an interview will say, well, you did blah, 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 blah. And I said, well, that's not true. Well, I read it in your book. <laughs> it's worse than that, Colin. Well, yeah, actually, there's a I wouldn't expect this to be maybe part of your consciousness, but there's a, a fairly famous large basketball player named Charles Barkley, who when things like that come up from his personal book, he explains that he has never read that book. So, you know, somebody somebody accused me in an interview. I hung up on them eventually, but somebody accused me of having a ghostwriter. And I said, what, what do you think I've been doing for 15 years? <laughs> I, I have a typewriter and everything. Well, yes, and and not only that. I mean, not only have you been writing for all these years. There's been a little bit of ghostwriting here and there. As- I've done some ghostwriting. Yes, though I'm not. I'm not a good ghostwriter because I immediately tell everybody I did it. Well, there there is. Now, I mean, not to get ahead of ourselves, but I thought that was kind of fascinating. The stuff about hairspray, where there it was really complicated. They wanted you to punch up the script, but they couldn't really show you the script, and they're like faxing pages to you, and and you're supposed to be punching it up in real time or something. It was it was kind of wacky. Look, you know, a musical is the most collaborative thing on the planet Mm -hmm. because not only do you have the original writer, then you have the composer with their voice and then you have a lyricist with their voice. Then it gets to the director and they've got their opinions about stuff. Then you've got actors. Oh, they what actors do these stuff. And then you have designers. Believe it or not, designers can change entire scenes. Mm -hmm. So by the time it gets to be a show, it may have started out with your DNA, but it's it's all of those people's DNA. And a show is like, I guess it's like putting a child out into the world. You can say that was my egg, that was my sperm, but that child is its own person, is its own thing, it's its own entity. And that's the way it is with a musical. So we had this show called Hairspray. We've been doing workshops of it. I was playing Edna, the mother, but they weren't going well. They, they just... It, it wasn't coming together. They were following the original movie, the John Waters movie, a little too closely. And things that work in a movie don't necessarily work on stage. It just became a mess. They brought in another writer. They offered it to me. I didn't want to do it. It was a whole league of fault. But eventually it all got straightened out with all of our DNA in it. And it's this big mass of love. And the show is... Um, one of those mega hits. It's absolutely fabulous. It, it is just completely part of the DNA of an awful lot of people at this point, including me. So let's back up here. So so we've got this memoir, I Was Better Last Night. And, and a memoir of this kind, I think, is, well, I mean, you're always basically trying to answer the, the Cary Grant question. How does a girl like you get to be a girl like you? That You're sort of asking that question or answering that question about yourself. But I guess I'm wondering, as you're writing this, 
whether there are insights coming to you about your own life, about your own self, where particularly, you know, as you really write, write about your early life, early career, whether you're going, oh, that's, I hadn't really thought about it that way, but that's sort of part of how I got to be who I am. Definitely, definitely. You know, when I started the whole project, I wrote to Shirley MacLaine because she's written, I think, nine autobiographies or memoirs or whatever you want to call them. And and I asked her for advice because who better than she? And she said, let memory be your editor. What is important will rise to the top as you're writing this book. And I said, well, I worry less about telling my own story. So many of my friends died so young many of them before they ever got to be who they should have been. And they'll never get to tell their story. And what do I do about them? How, how am I true to them? And she said, once again, it's you're always writing about yourself. Even when you're writing about other people, you're always writing about yourself when it's in this form. So just allow your memory to, to guide you. So the only thing I did, I tried to be very truthful about myself and I tried to put it out warts and all. But I did try to be kind to other people because a book is a book and it doesn't go away. It's not like an interview like you and I talking now. I can give you some gossip about something and uh, most people won't remember it. Well, nothing goes away anymore. Everything's on the Internet. <laughs> but it's, it is different. It is different. So I and if I had to be cruel, I tried to change names. <laughs> That's why all my boyfriends in the book have new names. <laughs> so but yeah, I think also, though, it is. It is a kind of therapy to do something like this. There's a way in which you're putting down on page maybe thoughts that were stray thoughts, little perceptions you might have halfway had about yourself and about your own life. Did you learn about you doing this? I, I, yeah, I would I would have to say yes, definitely. Now, I, I'm a 12-step person. Mm -hmm. So when I got sober, which has been almost 26 years ago, you do all of that stuff. You know, you, you take this fearless inventory of yourself and you admit all your wrongs and you try and make it up to all the people you hurt and all that. So I've done that at least twice because I did it once in Al-Anon. I did it once in AA. So this was like doing it again. And there is a saying in 12 Step, which you may know, which is look back, but don't stare. But writing this book called for staring. I had to go back and really look at something and say, how did that happen? And I did find places where I just, I just wrote over it. You know, as you do in life, you just go, okay, that was a bump. I hit the bump and let's just keep riding on. And I had to then examine that bump. I mean, even on even on gender, that's one of the issues I take up in the book that I don't think I've talked to many friends about. Do you want to say more about that? I want to know about your gender. <laughs> my, my gender. Do you ever, ever wonder? Um, <laughs> yeah, no, I see it. I sort of see it as a sort of a spectrum, a continuum, you know? Well, that's, I mean, I mean, kids now with this whole non-binary thing, yeah. which was not my generation's thing. You know, my generation was all about sexuality. We had to prove to the heterosexual world, that's that's sort of a lie, but um, we had to prove to the heterosexual <laughs> world that gay was normal, that gay was mixed in to the being human, that it was just part of who we all are. Now, this generation has like, skipped over sexuality, which is sort of thanks to marriage equality. We've sort of won that battle, except in Texas and Florida. And now they're into gender, this whole gender discussion, which I find frightening, challenging, 
and utterly fascinating. Well, well, how do you feel about calling people they and them? How are you on the pronoun war? You know, I would say that I am, I go back to something that you said before when we were talking about the difference between saying yes and saying no. It's hard to change. It it takes a kind of effort to change. And it's, (laughs) I was born in 1954, so we're kind of generationally in the same kind of ballpark. And the problem for me is not that I'm, I'll call anybody anything they want to be called. I've, I've felt that way about all kinds of things all through my life. You know, things change and there was, you know, a time when you stop calling people black, you start calling them African-American, whatever people want to be called, I'm fine with it. And they want to be they, that's great. It's, it's just a, as we get older, it's harder to remember stuff like that. And it's much harder to change ingrained patterns. So if you haven't been doing they, them for 65 years or something, it's not, you're not going to do it, figure out how to do it overnight. And you have to hope that your audience, so to speak, will be patient with you, right? Yeah, I, th- I think so. You know, I, well, in the book, I tell a story about how I got in so much trouble using the word fruit at one point. <laughs> now, I mean, you know, if I'd used the word queer, I would have been in even bigger trouble. And yet you can use the word queer now, it's just fine. I do have a problem, I have to say, with they and them, only because I feel like I'm dissing the person. I, I'm, I'm somehow giving them lower status than you. You know, or calling she or he means a person. They, them means more than one per I, 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 I'm old. So what I found that works for me, Colin, I call them by their names. But that means so, Jamie's going to go out to Jamie's car and get Jamie's bag and bring Jamie's bag back up to Jamie's room. I mean, you get pretty Jamie's out of You got it, Cookie. I'd rather do that than insult somebody <laughs> or hurt their feelings. So I was, I, I did a day on a movie with Billy Eichner and the person assigned to take care of me that day was a they, them named Steph. And I said, I may mess up during the day. I could mess up, but it's possible. I'm not that bright and I don't <laughs> learn that quickly. And so do you mind if I call you Steph? And they said, fine. And I called them Steph. And you just they'd them right there. So, so you do well, that. Well, I'm trying. I'm, <laughs> well, I'm working on it. You know, it's still new, but I'm, I'm trying because, uh, you know, the world, oh, what is wrong with the world right now? You and I, as old people know, it's old people. <laughs> if we didn't have Putin, that old fart, if we didn't have, you know, look at our government. We're dying from old people. They're killing us. The generation, the next generation must be given the world. They've got to do a better job than we've done with it. So give it to them. Take it, Cookie. I'm going to Five and dime. No, we got no five and dime. I'm going to Calder. No, we got no more Calder. I'm going to Colt. No, we don't got Colts. I'm going to sit by the curb. You take over the world. I just think there are too many old people running the world at the moment. And so you and I are going to learn whatever they want us to learn. And we're going to support these young people. Are we, Colin? We are. But let's do we have to own Putin? I say we don't invite Putin to the reunions. You know, I mean, it's just like do we have to have him. <laughs> He put him in the old age home. Somebody said on TV yesterday, I thought it was so funny. Might have been John Oliver. He put up a picture of Putin and just said, if he was four inches taller. (laughs) And it's true. There's a little little bit of that going on. He's got something to prove still. So this is a perfect time to talk about some stuff that comes up in the book. And it's interesting. Before I just before I started reading the book, 
just by chance, a bunch of us all from the same generational cohort. And and you grew up in Bensonhurst, and I don't know how different this is. I grew up in Connecticut. But, you know, in Connecticut in the 1950s and into the early 1960s, you could be an 11-year-old kid and not know what homosexuality was, literally not know what it was, you know, and you'd see Paul Lind on TV and think, well, he's funny, but it wouldn't even occur to you (laughs) that he was being funny in a very specific way. I think this really comes out. There's a moment in your book, and we've actually got it here. I think it's 83. You're going on 2020. And I'm almost tempted to play their little intro to you where Hugh Downs and Barbara Walters, I think they say gay and homosexual around 150 times in the space of a minute. But then you get into the interview with Walters, and here's what happens. We all have the same problem. Do we? Yeah. What's it like to be a homosexual? (sighs) You do have the easy ones, don't you? What is it like? What's it like being a heterosexual? I don't know. I'm just a person. I'm a person who sees the world in the opposite light than you do. That's all. Uh, But I see the exact same world as you do. I assume that everyone is gay unless I'm told otherwise. Uh, You assume everyone's straight unless you're told otherwise. I see a beautiful woman on the street. I appreciate her as a beautiful woman, but not as a sex object. Do you feel jealous of her? Why would I feel jealous of her? Because she might be after the same man. Or, or he no, may be I'm, I'm not attracted to heterosexual men. And, and it kind of goes on from there. There's one point where she says something like, and, and this is in the book, she says, you know, three years ago, or I don't know how long it was, I couldn't have done this interview. I couldn't have put this interview with you on television. And I'm reading that and thinking about it and thinking, you couldn't? Like, why why was what was she saying? I mean, and actually your response to her, which I will have you now make, was really interesting. You laid it out there, but there's so much more subtle stuff going on there. But my response to her was, you could, you could have and you should have. Now, Barbara and I were friends. Mm-hmm. I knew her socially. I'd been to her home. We'd been to parties together. I knew her lesbian friends. We're not talking about somebody who thought this way. But we sat down on that couch. And what you can't see, the look on my face, I think I, I like my eyes just pop out of my head when she asked those questions because I'm going... Where's my friend Barbara? Who is this person I'm sitting opposite here asking me these crazy questions? You, you, you've got gay friends. We just we're going to go to lunch with our gay friends in 15 minutes. What, what, what is this? <laughs> but well, she did a, she, you know, she did a brilliant job because that clip, as I said, has not gone away for it was 1983. So it's we're talking about 40 years. It has not gone away for 40 years. It's given aid and comfort to kids co- just coming out. It's given aid and comfort to to people living in a small town that felt they were the only gay person. It has helped people. She created that. She created the opportunity. You are somebody who has an editor. You know you can edit anything to make you look good and the person you're you're interviewing look bad. She did not do that. She made herself look like a bigot, an uninformed bigot, and she let me shine. She made me shine. <laughs> the yeah, she does kind of turn into an anthropologist, like she's visiting this island where the unusual. It's but it is. Yeah, I think first of all, your interpretation of it is is very very gracious. So think about that, and then think about now. I mean. If you get any more mainstream, you can have your own theme park. We're all going to be going on, you know, Torch Song trilogy rides or something. I know, but look at that. It's the world that changed, not me. 
I'm still the same. I can't. I don't know what I can say on your show or not. This is Connecticut. <laughs> I have to keep watching my mouth because, you know, in theater, we don't have to watch nothing but our feet so we don't fall off the stage. But I'm still that same person who does those same things and acts the same way. I have not changed. The world around me has changed. Paul Lind is not alive anymore. He's as gay as he was <laughs> back then. I, mean, I broke my mother's heart the first time I told her that I, I was going out to dinner with Rock Hudson. You know, the, uh, straight people are so straight people are so stupid about sexuality. I mean, they just think everyone's them unless told otherwise. That's the funny part. You 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 heterosexuals just wander through the world thinking I'm the, the king of the world. I'm the majority. I it's all about me, 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 me. And then it's you people on the side. The world ain't that way, Cookie. You're in the minority. You're a male which makes you in the minority to start with, that you've kowtowed women into letting you lead is absurd. But if women ever decided, you know, there's that story in the book about uh, Gloria Steinem when I was doing Bella Bella. So I was I was doing a section of Bella Bella where I'm talking with as Bella Abzug and Gloria Steinem is at the rehearsal as a dear friend of Bella's. She's come to watch the rehearsal. And I get up to a point where I'm saying, well, the Jews will vote for this one and the Hispanics will vote for that one. And the blacks will vote for, for me. And and then women, oh, women. Um, if only they didn't vote uh, uh, the way their husbands told them to vote. And Gloria stood up in the room and said, no, white women, white <laughs> women. And I said, excuse me. She said, black women voted for Hillary. White women did not. Mm. And I so I said, OK, so let me change that line to, you know, something like, well, if only white women um, would, wouldn't, wouldn't vote for the people that their husband told them to. She said, no, nope, no, nope, that's not true either. So I said, well, what's the truth? She said, they don't have to be told who to vote for. White women vote in the interest of the men who support them. Those are the words of Gloria Steinem. And I stopped you know, as you do when you are with a saint <laughs> and you listen and you then work it in your brain. And I started thinking to myself, who have I heard these stupid things from about Hillary, that Hillary can't be president because she'll have her period and blow up the world, that Hillary can't be president because women can't keep secrets, that Hillary is anti-Israel. And I said, it wasn't, she's right. It, it wasn't men saying that stuff. It was women. It was women mm -hmm. who were told all of these lies on media and soaked it up because it was in their interest. They could stay home and be supported by their husbands. Women are the majority of the world. And if women would just realize and take that power and run the world, but instead mm -hmm. they don't. So we're going to go to a break in just a second here. I think maybe I need to say something that I don't think that you would be comfortable saying. So, and there aren't that many things that you wouldn't be comfortable saying. So, you know, we start with that 1983 clip where Barbara Walters, bless her heart, is talking to you like 
you know, you've got antennae and a spaceship you just landed in, you know, and then we look to the present. I mean, you're in the Macy's Day Thanksgiving parade as Edna dressed up as Mrs. Santa Claus. You sing to Muppets, you voice Disney movies. And yes, the world changed, as you said. But what I'm going to say that I think you wouldn't be comfortable saying is I think you're a pretty significant part of that change. You know, when we start with Torch Song Trilogy and what that is and take it through your entire oeuvre and and the fact that you are kind of oddly lovable. So here you are kind of, you know, telling your story and being lovable and being very smart about telling your story. I, I feel like you're part of the cultural change that you now benefit from. Well, let me say this. From now on, my resume will read <laughs> Harvey Firestein. He's oddly lovable. <laughs> Look, as I said, in my mind, the world has changed. I, sitting on top of a float, it's a great example, sitting on top of a float in the Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade in full drag as Mrs. Santa Claus singing a song they gave me about watch out because Santa will know with three the dynamites from, from Hairspray. So it's three young black women as my backup singers. And I'm out there as Mrs. Santa Claus. I published, I don't know if you remember, I published an op-ed in the New York Times the day before Thanksgiving, in which I asked if we found out that Santa was gay. And we don't really know. We've never really seen him, you know. That. <laughs> what if he turned out to be gay? Would all of these people lock their doors and keep him out from then on? Would he be rejected because he was gay? Because um, we don't know. And what if his wife really was a drag queen? <laughs> on the top of it? And you know, Macy's did not then disinvite me from being Mrs. Santa Claus on the parade. Macy's made no negative remarks at all. Macy's did put a Mrs. Santa Claus with him at the end of the parade, which had never been done before. You know, Santa's riding the sleigh. All of a sudden, Mrs. Claus was sitting there going, I got to go along for the ride. <laughs> the way he drives. So, so they stuck a Mrs. Santa Claus in there, but they didn't ever put me down. And along that parade route, riding down Fifth Avenue, you know the size of that parade, Colin. Mm-hmm. People waved and blew kisses and screamed, I love you. And I didn't get one negative remark except for somebody in having to do with hairspray. The only person who went against me. Well, I mean, yeah, that's as good a place for us to make a transition. We sell that toilet paper. <laughs> we, we know this is public radio. We don't do that. We give you tote bags to put your toilet paper in. But we're going to take a little break here. We'll be back with more of Harvey Firestein. You're like a rare vintage ripple, a vintage they'll never forget. So poor be a teeny weeny triple, and we can toast the fact we ain't dead yet. I can't stop eating your hairlines receding. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford Healthcare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. ECMO is a leading-edge, life-saving treatment for patients with cardiac or respiratory failure. Dr. Jason Gluck, director of the Mechanical Circulatory Support Program and Emergency Cardiac Care at Hartford Hospital, explains what it is. 
So ECMO stands for extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, outside the body oxygenation of blood. It's a life support technique that's used by highly sophisticated medical systems for patients with severe heart or lung failure. The technique involves removing blood from the body, oxygening it, and then returning it back. ECMO procedures happen in the ICU, but not all hospitals are equipped with the necessary technology and staff. Dr. Gluck describes Hartford Hospital's ECMO Go team. So ECMO is considered when treatments have failed, and in our center, with a special ECMO on the go team, we'll actually take that technology to their hospital and help them out there if they need to to stabilize the patient and then bring them back to heart for recovery. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. Yeah, I'm among the last of a dying breed. Well, once the ERA and gay civil rights bills have been passed, me and mine will find ourselves swept under the carpets. Like the blacks done to Amos, Andy, and Aunt Jemima. But that's all right. Hey, with a voice and a face like this, I got nothing to worry about. I can always drive a cab. You know, there are easier things in this life than being a drag queen. But I ain't got no choice. See, um, try as I may, I just can't walk in flats. So, I'm with Harvey Firestein. I mean, not physically, unfortunately. We're Zooming or something. He has won four Tony Awards. hes I should have said all this at the beginning of the show. He's an actor on stage, on screen, a playwright, a screenwriter. We've established also a ghostwriter. He's the author of this very charming and very, very funny and often touching memoir, I Was Better Last Night. All right, so there's so much to talk about in so little time. I do want to spend a little bit of time on Torch Song. It's certainly very well documented and explained and discussed in the book. There's going to be time... You know what I want you to tell? It's one of my favorite stories in this book for a whole bunch of different reasons. Could you tell the Paul Bogart, Paul Simon story? This is such a great story. Oh, gosh. Yes. Years before I wrote Torch Song, well, maybe even when I was writing Torch Song, I stopped at the 29 cent bin at Woolworths or whatever and, you know, go through those records. And there was a, an album called The Amazing Big May Bell. I never heard of it, but it was a big fat black woman on the cover. And, that, you know, I'm a suck of a big fat black woman. So I bought the album and I took it home and discovered this world of Big May Bell. If you don't know who Big May Bell Smith was, many people credit her with being the mother of rock and roll. Anyway, unbelievable voice. Listen to her. You can find her on YouTube along with the rest of the world. There was one cut on it called I'll Never Turn My Back on You, which had me in tears. You know, man, song but at the very end of the song one of her background singers hits a high note that's absolutely fabulous and so theatrical when i was writing the third act of torch song i had the boy my son dedicate a song to me on the radio and i said that's the song so it became the entire last three minutes of this trilogy of this four and a half hour trilogy is summed up by this recording of Big Maybell singing I'll never turn my back on you with this high note that when the high note hits the lights come down the audience goes crazy fabulous (laughs) 
to make the movie. We shoot that scene just as it was on stage. And Paul Bogart, the director, and uh, for those of you who don't know, he did a lot of early television. He directed a lot of Golden Girls. He's, he's a wonderful director, and, and I did adore him. And we never had any fight over anything. But when we sat down to watch how he edited that scene, on comes Ella Fitzgerald singing, This Time the Dream's on Me. And he said, Harvey, you can't use that other song. I'll never turn my back on you. It's dirty. I said, you have got to have a very twisted mind to think of. I'll never turn my back. Oh, that's what people are going to think. It's gay. And I'll never turn my back on you when it's dirty. We had this huge fight. And we're still fighting coming out of the out of the office. We're, we're in L.A. At a, at a recording studio. And we come out of the office. And the elevator door opens. And there's Paul Simon, the one and only Paul Simon, standing there in the elevator. Now, I knew that Paul had seen the show. And I think he saw it twice. So I turned to Paul in the middle of this fight with Paul Bogart. And I said, Paul, he doesn't want to use I'll Never Turn My Back on You, the big Maybell song. And and Paul just turned to him and said, that's the entire show. <laughs> you, you take that out, you lose the entire show. And I said, see? And but Paul Bogart said, you made me put that in. I will take my name off the movie. And I gave in. And I shouldn't have. It's one of those things. I still, to this day, wish that I could go back and change it. And the funny part is, I took this footage home, played it, and played that. It's timed out perfectly for <laughs> the other song, perfectly. It doesn't, you don't have to re-edit anything. Just change the song out. One of the things that I love about that scene, I mean, there is something a little bit heartbreaking about the fact that it didn't have its desired effect. So there's nowhere near enough time to talk as much about Torch Song Trilogy. I hate movies anyway. I hate doing movies. <laughs> So let's don't even bother with movies. All right. Well, well, there's one thing that I do I do want to talk about because it's clearly important to you, and, and you write about it in the book. I've heard you talk about it elsewhere, and that is the whole question of casting in some of these movies. And it was something you were very determined to not be the case about Torch Song, which is that an awful lot of times straight actors often in hot pursuit of Oscars, which they often get, will play these roles. And maybe you could just say a little bit about that and how it affected choices made about Torch Song. Well, it's, it's one of those funny things, you know, a gay person plays heterosexuals and, you know, nobody says a word about it, but a straight person plays a gay role and it's like, oh, what was that like? That was really hard, wasn't it? I think it was Frank Langella said, when I did Dracula, I wasn't asked a quarter of the questions about what it was like to be a vampire as I was when I played a gay person. <laughs> they asked me what it was like to be gay. It's so weird. And of course, as you said, they play a gay character and they give them an Oscar. You know, that's uh, uh, the, the Dallas Buyers Club, uh, Brokeback Mountain. I mean, all of those, you know, Harvey Milk. Uh, all of Tom Hanks, people. Philadelphia. Yeah, Tom Hanks, you know, you play gay. Oscar, we play heterosexual. Okay, next. Um, <laughs> and I happen to think it's like English actors and American actors. English actors come over here and they do the best American accents. They do regional accents. They do local accents. Oh, they're great. American actors go to England. We can't do anything. We can't do <laughs> anything. We They just laugh at us. You know, the biggest joke in all of the movie dumb is Dick Van Dyke's accent in Mary Poppins. <laughs> Well, no, there's Kevin. Co- there's Kevin Costner's Robin Hood. I'll, I'll put I'll put Kevin Costner's Robin Hood up against Dick Van Dyke okay. any day. Yeah, I, yeah, I didn't I didn't make it through that one. But uh, you know, it's like I I always think of it that way. That it's gay actors play straight people great because 
there's so many of them around. It's kind of, <laughs> but the other way around, it doesn't work so well most of the time. Am I one of those people who would put his foot down and not allow it? No, because when we were doing Tort Song, and it was that specific time, we were doing the movie in 1985. It was really, really, really the height of how many people would be sick from AIDS. A lot of, of gay actors didn't want to be in a gay movie. They just didn't. And as hard as we tried, we could not. And so we cast friends. We cast straight people that were friends. Matthew Broderick, who had played my son originally, played my love. He obviously was too old to play my son anymore, but he played my lover. And Brian Kerwin, who had played his role on stage. So we did that. But we used as many openly gay people as we could. Ken Page played my best friend Murray. And we had, um, I'll, I'll tell you a funny story. So we're all standing around. Parts of Tort Song takes place in a drag club. They're all in drag, the drag performers. And we were shooting that in, in L.A. on La Cienega. There was a club called La Caja Fall at that time. And we were shooting in that club. So the makeup trailers and all that are, are in the parking lot there. And we're all getting made up. You know, it's 7, 8 o'clock in the morning. And we're all getting made up to this big drag scene. And Charles Pierce, who was this 70-year-old drag queen, who'd been in drag since he was in his 30s. And I spent specifically wrote this role to get him on film because I wanted him preserved for all time doing his thing. I just, I wanted to make sure we had that on film for eternity. So Charles is the last one to come out of the makeup trailer. We're all standing in full drag in this parking lot. Charles comes out of the trailer in this red gown, huge wig, all these diamonds, big red lips, leans into us and says, girls, my mother's coming to the set today. <laughs> Not a word. <laughs> he thought his mother didn't know he was gay. I just, it killed me. <laughs> yes, the scales definitely fell from her eyes. All right, so, well, we have to take another break. Not to sell toilet paper, although I would, I'm not above selling toilet paper. I've done you know what? Lot. Tote bags are, we need tote bags now. We don't got plastic bags no more. Give us our tote bags. I don't understand why people just don't give money to to the station just to get tote bags. Well, the, from your lips to God's ears. But we have to take a break right now. Har Harvey Firestein is with us. His new memoir is I Was Better Last Night. We'll be back in just a second. Take a breath. Take a sniff. You can blow it in your handkerchief. Because <laughs> a tank. Don't ask why. Don't ask how. Honey, everything's coming up noses. Smell a flower. Smell a fresh apple pie. Before I go any further, there's people to thank. Kat Pastor is, as always, our technical producer doing marvelous work. Jonathan McPants is the guy who uh, put this show together with some help from one of our interns, Michaela Savitt. So thanks to all of them. And we are going to proceed ahead with more of Harvey Firestein. So... So much in this book, and, and everybody you ever wanted to know anything about is in this book and is uh, very interestingly described. But, you know, I don't know. Stephen Sondheim's kind of top of mind these days. First of all, of course, we lost him just a couple of months ago. And also because we've got the remade or kind of reimagined West Side Story. So you've got a, you've got a whole Sondheim chapter here. I don't know. You, you tell the story any way you want to. I always want to write a show with Steve Sondheim. Who didn't want to write a show with Steve <laughs> 
everybody wanted to write a stick show with Steve Sondheim. So there was this fabulous movie, this old night black and white movie called A Letter to Three Wives. And it had all the stuff that Steve loves writing about. It had jealousy and heartbreak and I wish I had and what if I did and all that kind of stuff. All those questions that he loves putting on to music. And I, so I called him up and I said, Steve, I got this great idea. And I sent him the original book, which was actually called A Letter to Five Wives. Ooh, two more <laughs> wives. And I sent him the book and and, and we made an appointment. It was uh, on a Wednesday. I was doing Fiddler on the Roof on Broadway. So it was a matinee uh, between shows. I jumped in a cab, went speeding up to his place on the Upper East Side, his townhouse. I got inside. It was raining and snowing outside. Sat down by the fireplace. You know, the, he had the fire roaring and he had a little drink as uh, he was wont to do. And I had my little glass of water. And I went, so, and he said, no. <laughs> I said, what's with the no? He said, are you right about this book? Absolutely, you're right about this book. I love that movie. I could probably perform that movie for you. I could. I love it so much. I could sit down at the piano now and I could play you a song from the musical. I would bet you I could write the entire score in a month. That's how much I love it. You're absolutely right. These are the things I love. These are the themes I love. You're absolutely right. This is my material. I'm not doing it. <laughs> Why, Steve? It's called A Letter to Three Wives. As soon as you tell one story, the audience looks at their watch and go, I got to sit through two more. That was it. <laughs> of course, I'm sitting there with like, like, what? how do you even answer that? Of course, you know, uh, afterwards, I thought of lots of answers. But that was that was him. Yeah. That was so quintessentially the way that he thought and the way that he put things together and the way his mind worked. He was always that. You know, when people ask me, tell me about your next project, I always say no. I'm, if I tell you, then I have to work it out in my head to tell you. And then I've already done the work and I'm not going to bother ever writing it. So it's not important to tell you what I'm thinking. It's important for me to know what I'm thinking. Um, and it's the same thing with him. If he could already imagine the questions, if he could already imagine the answers, and he's kind of a brilliant guy, it takes a lot to sound time, then there wasn't enough to keep him interested. You know, he was always he needed a question that he couldn't answer, that he had to work out at the piano. He had to work it out. Easy was not his way. There's so many things I want to ask you about. We're running out of time, so I'll figure it out this way. So if you're walking, I don't know, back in the old days when you used to walk through airports or any other kind of crowded space and somebody spots you and recognizes you, you know, for the mass audience, the people who are in airports, it's probably not going to be Torch Song. It might not be lacage or maybe hairspray because you're you're out of costume among other things i mean if they call out and they say hi you know and they yell something about you that they like what's it what is it what is it most often you know what it is oh you'll be so cute and sly you're so cute colin <laughs> you know what it is it's gonna be doubtfire it's always doubtfire it's not even independence day there was a time when it was independence day you know oh you're the guy from independence day but it's it's always gonna be doubtfire i said to robin once i said you know i lived my whole life doing all of this work you know doing my political work and my social work and my writing my acting i've done you know the uh, 40 years of, of this stuff and when i die 
all anybody's gonna know is I was Robin Williams' brother in this is Doubtfire. <laughs> no, no, I feel like Bobby. This is not working. Yeah, no, this isn't working. But don't worry, it's a work in progress. And you're my brother. I will never let you be embarrassed. God bless you. I think we're gonna have to do the entire face. But look at this nice thing that we have here. Matchmaker, matchmaker, make me a match. And I, you know, and it's so funny because, of course, you know, now now that Robin's gone, I mind it much less. <laughs> now that he's gone, I, I, I am more proud to be associated with him and to have that association to be his brother because he was in many ways like a brother to me. I adored him. And, um, um, you know, and we had a, 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 a relationship that was very interesting and, 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 um, and heartfelt. Yeah, I mean, I found your description of that relationship to be very touching. And and he is a complex figure to try to know. I did listen to a very long Mark Maron interview with him where I thought, this is probably about as close as I would ever be able to come to hearing somebody like the real Robin Williams. I mean, he just would, uh, I was in his presence once or twice, and he would just kick into overdrive so fast that he was almost never in danger of saying something particularly real. But listening to him be fairly real with Maron, you just, you just realize this is an incredibly complicated human being. Very, very much so. It was, and it wasn't, and I never minded the, you, you know, he had trained his brain to, to, to go into that overdrive, he had, which, which is real training. You know, he, he worshiped Jonathan Winters and, and, had, and had trained his brain to never stop and to just go subject to subject to subject to subject to image to image to image, which is very difficult to do. And, and, and so it wasn't as much that he didn't want to be Robin as much as he, he, I don't know, he always felt he had to be Robin. You had to be that other Robin. But we, you know, obviously when you're friends, you, you have those other moments. But I never, but I never, ever, ever, ever minded when the, when the overdrive kicked in. Because you knew you were in the presence of genius and you knew you were seeing something no one else on the planet will ever see. Because he never repeated himself, or very rarely repeated himself. So just to quickly give a nod to the other movie that you mentioned. So my son and I have kind of a loose tradition where most July 4th or thereabouts, we watch Independence Day. That's how we observe Independence Day. So from the book, it's pretty clear that you've never seen, you've never seen Independence Day, have you? Well, they get killed so early. What the, why bother? <laughs> and when they made Independence Day 2, mm. they dug up a couple of dead people and put them in it, but they didn't put me in oh. it. So. I'm going to bother. You know, truth is, I worked on the movie for one day. David, why did I just send my mother to Atlanta? David, David, talk to me. You hear me tell you that the signal hidden in the satellite feed is slowly recycling down to extinction? Not really. Countdown. A countdown. We're going to count down to what, David? One day. And you thought you it know? was a comedy. What well, you I wouldn't think it was a comedy. There, they had three buildings. This is in L.A. They flew me in. I had the script, which was, you know, 10 lines. I think that's all the, the entire thing is. Um, they they showed me this one building where they just had models of stuff and they were blowing it up, you know, blowing up stuff. And they had another building that they had the gimbal in. That's the airplane that, that Will Smith flew. And it's on a machine that makes it go. But nobody ever left the ground to film that movie. There was no real <laughs> flying in that movie. There was no shots of real airplanes in that movie. It was all done by computer. And then the third building had my satellite 
um, television company in it um, and, the, and the staircases that everybody would run up and down. So that was basically it. So I go in, um, I've got these scenes with Jeff, um, uh, you know, and the director is having a great time, Roland Emmerich. He's, he's a blast. What a sweet man. Um, and, and fun, you know, and like we did a couple of takes and he said, okay, on this take, after he fixes the satellite thing, give him a big kiss on the mouth, you know? So we were fooling around and having a good time. Even when they killed me, um, when we finished shooting everything else, we went down to the to the space between those buildings where they had lined up six cars, maybe. And they said, OK, you sit in this car. We'll add all the other cars around you. And when the yellow light comes on you, that means that the Empire State Building is falling on you. So just <laughs> react to that. <laughs> Why wouldn't you think that's a comedy? Well, there you go. Uh, you know, and you are very funny in it, actually. And, and for people who don't, who are for the other person besides Harvey Firestein, who's never seen Independence Day, Jeff is Jeff Goldblum. I don't know if that was clear. I think oh, we're just calling oh, yeah, him Jeff all the way through. So yeah, we're kind of at the end here, and but, there's a lot in this book about getting sober. There's a lot in this book also about well, I mean, <laughs> there's getting there's that. There's also a lot about there's some stuff that I hadn't known about some pretty you know significant heart surgery that you've had and and stuff like that and but the the thing i'm going to have you tell at the end because i just want i think you'll enjoy telling it involves quitting smoking which you did at some kind of spa some like super fancy i get the sense spa that you were at where you encountered a very famous person in some you, kind of you don't want the smoking story you want the you want the hot tub story i want okay. the hot i want the hot tub story yeah, that's okay. how i want to end so i had gotten sober and um, my friend Barbara, who, who owns the Southwest Cafe um, here in the small fictional town that I live in in Connecticut, um, <laughs> she had just had a little cancer scare. And I said, you know what? We could both use some time away. So let's go to Canyon Ranch, which is, uh, you know, there's a Canyon Ranch out west. Mm -hmm. There's one in upstate New York. And let's just go and we'll work out. You know, we were both into working out at that time. And she still is. Uh, <laughs> I said it's only going to come back. Um, so 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 off we went, and 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 we had a fabulous time. We spent four days up there and had a fabulous time. But um, you worked out all day, and then at night you had your your you always planned it so you had your massage just before you went to sleep, and so you you waited for your massage in a room that had a hot tub, and then so you totally relaxed, went in, had your massage, and then went up to your room, went to sleep. So this last night we were there, and it's it's dark, sort of. A moody, moody kind of hot tub. And so I go in there, it's down in the in the warm water and I have my eyes closed and I hear the door open and somebody comes in, gets into the hot tub. It's a hot tub, you know, that many people could fit in. And I open my eyes and it's and and, and it's and it's you say the name. You go ahead, Colin. I know you want to say it. It's James oh, Taylor. It's James Taylor. It's James Taylor. It's James Taylor. So I said, you're, Harvey, you're not going to be an ass. You're not going to, you know, you're not going to fangirl him in a hot tub. You're just not. So I, I, I played it really cool, you know, sort of nod each other like, hey, boy, um, you know, nodded and, and acted um, um, nice and like let him sit there in the hot water. But they called me to go for my for my massage. And so I said, oh, I'm never going to see him again. And I just um, got up out of the hot tub, turned to him and said, um, that's a really nice penis you got there. <laughs> Was it really, or were you just being polite? No, he has a very nice penis. <laughs> All right. Well, on that beautiful, beautiful sentiment, uh, <laughs> uh, 
Uh, we have to stop. I, it pains me to stop because uh, this is fun. You know, it's public radio. It's public radio. What are you going to do, right? So the book is I Was Better Last Night, a memoir by Harvey Firestein. You should absolutely get this book. Thank you very much, sir. It's been a pleasure. Bye, Cookie.